Well, greetings again on this second Sunday of Lent. Yesterday, uh, a group of roughly 20 of us scoured the neighborhoods, uh, picking up different trash and litter on the village trail and in the sidewalks. And while we found our fair share of disgusting objects, like a dead bird and some other nasty things, uh, we also saw that winter's grip uh, is breaking under the inevitability of spring. The cherry blossoms are literally popping right now. We've got uh, bluebells coming up, daffodils, and the occasional tulip is making its way up through the, the, the earth. And the air may have been chilly, but you can see a preview of what's to come, and it's glorious, and I, I can't wait. <laughs> Lent literally means springtime. And while it's true that you and I, each one of us, has our fair share of litter in our heads and in our hearts, Lent reminds us that the death grip of sin does not have the final word over you and me. It's a season where we intentionally pause to take stock of who we really are so that we can allow Jesus the opportunity to cleanse us from the inside out and make us new. So how is Jesus working among you, in you, this Lenten season? What are you seeking during this season? What are you looking for? What are you longing for? This is the question that Jesus asked his disciples in John chapter 1, and it's the question that we wrestled with last Sunday during the sermon time and probably throughout the week if you were meditating on that text. Maybe your longing you found is simply to be closer to Jesus. Maybe your longing is more character-related. You long to embody the character of Jesus, to bear in your life the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You want more of that God-quality life in your life. Or maybe you're wrestling with that question and not very long because you're overburdened and you're distracted and so busy that you don't even know what your deepest desire is. And maybe you're just longing for Jesus to reveal what your longing ought to be. I have good news this evening. I have good news for those who know their longing is Jesus. I have good news for those who desire transformation in Jesus. And I have good news for those of you who don't know because you're stuck on the treadmill of life. And you're afraid if you get off, everything might fall apart. The good news is that Jesus is breaking into your life. He not only rescues us from the consequences of sin and death at the end of our lives, he longs to rescue us from the emptiness of a distracted, apathetic futility of life without him. That's good news. What I said is, and what our theology says, and what the Bible says, is that Jesus is doing that work. He is at work, whether or not you recognize it or not, sorry, whether or not you want it or not. He's a God who is active and wants to rescue us. And Jesus has provided you and I with practices, life rhythms that can put us in a position to better receive him, to better receive his grace and his healing and his transformative work. Now this Lenten season, our series, our sermon series is titled Sacred Rhythms. It's based on Ruth Haley Barton's book of the same title, Sacred Rhythms. It's, I was like, I should come up with a different title to be original, but I was like, why? It's a good title and it's based on the book, so that's what we're doing. Anyway, during this season, we're going to be exploring different spiritual disciplines, di different practices that can help us not only recognize our longing for Jesus, but also help us fulfill that longing for Jesus. 
Now, as I mentioned last week, spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines, they're not magical. It's not like I do this thing and then automatically it's going to bear fruit. And spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices are not the goal of the Christian life. I think that's a mistake we sometimes make. We think I'm a Christian, I'm supposed to pray. Prayer is the goal. I'm a Christian, I am supposed to tithe or fast. That is the goal. It's not the goal. Spiritual disciplines are to the spiritual life what conditioning is to an athlete or what doing your scales is to a musician, uh, what flashcards are to a student, and what maybe hitting balls at the driving range is to a golfer. They are practices that put us in a position so that when we want to do something, we can actually do it. That's what a discipline does. Spiritual practices put us in a position to receive Jesus. They're not always fun, but they lead us to a deeper and fuller life. And this is certainly true for the discipline of silence and solitude. Silence and solitude, and I saw some of you shift. They're two of the most terrifying words in our overstimulated culture. For the vast majority of people, they're, they're, they're scary words. Seriously, most of us want a richer, deeper life with Jesus. We want to have a depth of soul. But the more I talk with people, the more I hear the sentiment that people feel stretched too thin. To quote Bilbo Baggins, like butter over too much bread. Overwork underrested, overstimulated, unreflective. And those are just my issues. What about you? We now have terms like screen time, like you're supposed to monitor that. That wasn't even a thing before. Uh, we have detox centers for technology. Like people get into these detox centers and they have to leave their phones and the monks call that a silent retreat. But I mean, now there's places where you, literally people are recognizing addiction to devices. So they go to a detox center. Many of us have a smartphone as the last thing we see, or a tablet, the last thing we see before our head hits the pillow, the first thing we check when we get up. It's not just that screens are bad in, in, uh, in small doses, or information is bad, or being connected via communication is bad. It's just that too much of a good thing is often a bad thing. We are so connected to people electronically that we're often more disconnected with the very people we live with or do life with in person than we are with people on Facebook or at the other end. And if we're that distracted from the attention of people we can see, what does this behavior do to a God who we cannot see? Corey and I have a no phone at the dinner table policy. Why do we have to have that policy? because it's been a problem. There's always one more email for me to check, one more sports score for me to look at, one more message to reply to. We intentionally try and have dinner together as a family as often as we can. How stupid would it be if later on it's like, well, we did a good job. We had dinner with our kids five nights a week for their whole life growing up, and, yet, and then later on they're in therapy because they say, yeah, my parents were always looking at their phones. They thought they were doing something special by having dinner with us, but they were distracted. I mean, wouldn't that be ridiculous? It was ridiculous. That's why Corey called me out on it. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's, it, it's not just technology. Susan Phillips, who's a professor of sociology at UC Berkeley and a trained spiritual director, has written about how psychiatric problems often reflect our culture. 
She was uh, working on the third edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association, the DSM-3, back in 1980. She was on that, that board. And up until that time, up until 1980, hysteria and repression were the dominant issues in the mental health field in America, probably due to our intense national anxiety about nuclear war. But the shift in 1980, which has intensified since 1980 in, in, to this day, is that narcissism and disorders of attention and attachment have become prominent. She writes, disorders reflect cultures, and ADHD is a recognized disorder in the more economically competitive cultures today. Let me say that again. ADHD is a big deal in the economically competitive cultures of the day. It's not as big a deal in other cultures. While the majority of the population does not suffer from a psychiatric problem, we all struggle to be attentive in what she calls the three-ring circus of life in America. Things always going on. She continues, Our culture rewards hyperactivity, competitiveness, and the ability to move rapidly from one task to the next. The respite it offers is disengagement. We get patted on the back for multitasking and doing lots of things. And I gotta say, Apple's new operating system where you can do the split screen is so awesome. You can literally have two completely different documents open at the same time. But the respite, the reward of that type of lifestyle, it says, is disengagement. Exactly what I don't want in my life to be disengaged from the people I love and from the God I love. Right? That's the reward we reap from hyperactivity, uber-competitiveness, and multitasking. We get so busy that we don't have time to reflect, and some of us stay busy because we are avoiding reflection. It is just too painful to deal with the stuff that's under the surface. The problem is, and counselors, you'll agree with me here, that the stuff under the surface will always, always, always surface. Sometimes it'll be an ulcer. Sometimes it'll be some other physical ailment. Sometimes it will be the reason that you snap at people, that you're uber critical, that you're always worn down. These things have a way, the poison will come out if we try and avoid it. And the cure, I think the core cure is found in Jesus. And one of the time-tested avenues for receiving Jesus in a hurried world, because even before smartphones, people were busy, is the practice of silence, the practice of solitude. Silence and solitude make up two parts of one discipline. We pull away from the busyness of life and the noise, and we make time. And if even a start is five or ten minutes, we begin with that so that we can be still and allow Jesus to do the work underneath the surface. Like an iceberg, most of our human being is what's underneath the surface. Ruth Haley Barton writes, one of the fundamental purposes of silence and solitude is to give us a concrete way of entering into stillness so that God can come in and do what only God can do. There is work under the surface that only God can do, and he will only do it when we shut up and sit still long enough for him to do it. He will not fight us. One of the great dignity things that he gives us is an ability to choose 
and to do with our life what we'll do. He's not going to force you, but there's work that he and only he can do under the surface when we're still enough to let him. Now, here's where we're going with this this evening. I don't think that I need to convince you that most of us have exhausted souls and tired bodies and minds. I don't think I need to convince you of that. And if you don't, you're not there, bless you, I'm so glad. And I don't think I need to make the case that we could all benefit in some way, shape, or form from a regular practice of silence and solitude. I, I don't feel like I need to make that case. If you just think about it for a minute, you'd probably do well with that. I would too. And on top of that, I'm not going to use this preaching moment to spend time on technique, such as body posture and breathing, which are all important parts of this. I'm not going to talk to you about how to focus your attention when, or what to do when you get so easily distracted. There's great resources I'd be happy to point you to. All of our small groups right now are actually practicing all of these disciplines we're talking about on Sundays in a group setting, and I'd be happy to meet with you one-on-one and we could talk about these things. But that's not how I'm going to use the sermon time. Instead, what I'm going to do is focus on Jesus. The reality is that most of us are fearful of stopping. Silence and solitude sound like good ideas, and we know we're supposed to like them, but if we step off the treadmill and devote time to being still, won't the world fall apart? How will we get everything done? And when we have these fears, and I have them too, it shows that we don't know how good and gracious our God is. We don't fully know the good shepherd. So let's meet him afresh. Would you stand with me as we read Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my very life. He leads me on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the rest of my days. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever and ever. Lord, we thank you for this good word, for this beautiful psalm, this beautiful poem of who you are. Lord, help us in the power of your spirit to move beyond wishing this were true for us and help us to go into that new country of knowing it to be true for us. Help us to receive you as our good shepherd and to trust you that you are leading us into a better country, into a better way of being than we could lead ourselves. Amen. You may be seated.
Psalm 23 is the most famous of the 150 psalms. It's one of the best-known Bible passages in all of Scripture. And for some reason, it's become associated with funerals and gravesides. Unfortunately, I don't know why that is, but this psalm is really about life. It's really about a God who cares for his creation, and he cares for his people, very much on this side of the earth. The Lord is my shepherd. That's how it starts out. The Lord is an English rendering of the Hebrew Yahweh, the personal name of God. So another way of saying this is Yahweh, the God of creation, the ever-existent and almighty God, is my shepherd. This is a profound statement for at least three reasons. First, shepherds were not highly esteemed in the social pecking order in the ancient Near East. Shepherds were rough around the edges, lived hard lives, and had to be tough enough to defend their flock from wild animals and thieves. They had an edge to them. They were often working for long stretches of time as they took their flocks into the wilderness for grazing and watering. So you couldn't really be an active member of society in a town or a village. You couldn't be in the council. You couldn't be making decisions if you were always out in the field with your stinky sheep. You weren't in leadership positions if you were a shepherd. And frankly, you're in charge of the stupidest domesticated animal on the face of the earth. Okay, so the Lord has lowered himself to be our shepherd. He's humbled himself to serve those who would be lost without a shepherd. Okay, so we see this great act of condescension that the Lord is our shepherd. The second profound truth of God being a shepherd is that God often chooses outsiders to be the leader, leaders of his people. Moses was a shepherd. When God called him to lead his people out of Egypt, he needed a man who was humble and obedient and tough as nails, not only to face Pharaoh, but to face the nagging and complaining of the Israelites for year after year. The great king David was a shepherd before God chose him to lead his people. When Samuel went to uh, D- David's family, he couldn't believe it when the Lord said, oh, it's none of those handsome, older, stronger, well-established brothers. It's this little shepherd boy who I want to lead my people. And Jesus himself, the Son of God, self-identified as the good shepherd, as Jennifer read earlier. So Yahweh is my shepherd means he is humble and that he leads with care and humility. The third profound truth of God being a shepherd is that he isn't just a shepherd. He's my shepherd, and he's your shepherd. And he's been known as my shepherd to David and to the Israelites and to Jesus and to the church throughout the ages. He is the God who is with us and for us. And this God, who is our shepherd, knows that while we may not be as ignorant as sheep, we can get lost just as easily in our busyness and in our distractions. We can get addicted to activity just as easily as we can get addicted to drugs or alcohol or sex. We are a species, for as intelligent as we are, we are a species that can actually work ourselves to death. And I mean that literally, like hypertension, heart attacks, stress-related things that kill us young. We literally can work ourselves to death and think that that's a normal, acceptable way to live. We destroy our environment, for as smart as we are. We neglect 
those who we love who are in our very families and communities, and we starve our souls from the very God that we crave. So I would say that I need a good shepherd, and so do you. We are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. What does this shepherd do when we've strayed? Does he whip us into shape with his rod or just leave us to our own devices? Well, you guys screwed up. Wouldn't that be a horrible psalm? The Lord is my shepherd. I'm starving and alone. I strayed once, and when I looked up, the flock was gone, and I never saw the shepherd again. What a horrible psalm. I'm inspired. No, the, word, the wording is, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I lack nothing. In other words, God provides for me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. I don't do those things. In the Palestinian wilderness, where this psalm is likely set, rainfall is very seasonal and sporadic. So a shepherd has to know where to lead the flock in order to find adequate grazing and regular sources of water. It's not enough to have a shepherd who's well-intentioned. It's not even enough to have a shepherd who literally, genuinely loves his sheep. He also has to be competent and able to lead those sheep to good places. Philip Keller, who's a pastor, also spent nearly 10 years of his life before he was a pastor as a shepherd of sheep. He was like a real shepherd. And his commentary on Psalm 23, he writes, sheep do not lie down easily. You know the the line, he makes me lie down in green, green pastures, right? He says, sheep do not lie down easily. In fact, it's almost impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. One, freedom from fear of attack. Sheep are skittish. They've got to be They've they've got to sense a safety. Two, they need adequate space. Sheep literally freak out when they have friction against each other. They, They can't be touching one another for very long. So they need an adequate, roomy environment. Three, they need freedom from flies and parasites. Basically, they need freedom from things that are nagging them in order for them to lie down. And four, sheep, even if they're well-fed and watered today, will not lie down unless they see adequate food and water for tomorrow. So if they feel like we just grazed on this area and ate up all the grass or drank up all the water, they won't lie down because they're anxious about where they have to go next. So basically, sheep are fluffy balls of anxiety disorder. (laughs) Now consider the things that hold you back from slowing down and being still. The things that hold you back from simply meditating and reflecting on life, let alone be still before God. Have you ever heard your inner voice say, I'm afraid that if I stop to be still with God, fill in the blank. I'm afraid that if I stop to be still with God, I'll be wasting time. Wasting time spending time with your creator whose image you're made? Sounds kind of silly when you put it like that. Or, I'm afraid if I stop to be still with God, I'll let somebody down. I won't get done something I was supposed to do for them. Maybe you'll find out you've taken on too much. I'm afraid that if I stop to be still with God, I'll fall asleep. Good, you probably need it. I'm afraid that if I stop to be still with God, I won't get everything done. Probably not, but would you have anyway? And who knows, if you slow down and listen to your heart before God, you might realize there's things on your to-do list that aren't yours to do. I'm afraid 
If I slow down and I'm still with God, I won't like what I find. Now we're getting somewhere. Bringing things into the light is always hard, but oh so liberating. And the good news is that you're bringing whatever your junk is before a good and safe and competent shepherd. The one who brought you to the place of rest in the first place. The one who says, come to me and I will give you rest. Come to me, all you who have overburdened yourselves. Come to me and I will rest you. The Lord will restore your life. Most of our English Bibles say he will restore your soul, but the Hebrew word is nefesh, literally your breath, your life. Saying he'll restore your soul makes it sound like the Lord is only interested in restoring this weird ethereal part that we don't really understand what it is anyway. Have you ever seen a soul? But the fuller meaning is a restoration of your whole life, which includes forgiveness and restoration and rest and vitality, and health, and confidence in God, and clear thinking about your life and about your world. The good shepherd, God, leads us on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Contrary to popular opinion, this does not mean that the Lord leads us to the rules of righteousness so that we make his name famous in the world. Have you ever thought that? I I used to read it that way, that the Lord is going to lead me to be a more moral person so that then I reflect him in a way that gives him glory. But it's actually quite the opposite. In the ancient world, your name was your reputation. You were only as good as your name. And righteousness means right relatedness. So it's following through with what you say you will do and following through with who you say you are. So, What the psalm is about is about the righteousness of God, the faithfulness of God. The psalmist declares that God will lead us on paths of righteousness for his reputation, for his name's sake, and this should give us confidence. God will do these things, the leading us to green pastures, the quiet waters, the restoration of our life. He will do these things because of his promise to do these things. God will do these things to defend his reputation as the faithful one, as the covenant keeper, as the shepherd of his people. It's not stuff that you have to do. We just open ourselves up to what God wants to do. The psalmist is so moved by the goodness of God that he now switches from talking about God to talking to God. It's like the first part of the psalm, he's just working himself up and realizing this God is so good and the reality of God as good shepherd has given him such confidence that he can now say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now, this isn't just a uh, talking about literal death. It's a metaphor for the shadow of death and sin that is cast over the whole world. It is the curse that we live under, the way that things tend to go wrong. Murphy's Law, if it can go wrong, it probably will. There are dangers all around, natural dangers that you can see, tiny dangers that you can't, viruses and and, and biological dangers. There's human dangers, there's spiritual dangers, and it would be very easy, and I'm sorry if I just freaked you out thinking about it, it would be very easy for us to live in constant fear and anxiety. In fact, 
Certain politicians want to play on those fears and say, no, we will defend you from these things by putting in defensive measures. But the psalmist knows better. The psalmist knows that God is a good shepherd. He's armed with a rod for defending his sheep and a staff to lead them. Shepherds like David were known to fend off bears, wolves, and lions as the shepherd. In fact, when David said he would fight Goliath, and Saul's like, you're just a kid, like, what can you do? He goes, dude, he didn't say dude. (laughs) Basically said, I used to fend off lions and bears with my club when I was tending my father's sheep, and this Philistine will be just the same. These are bad dudes. This isn't just this pastoral view of, you know, sometimes there's those paintings of Jesus with the shepherd's staff, and he's like this with the sheep. I mean, you don't want to mess with this guy. He's good, and he's gentle, but he's also tough as nails, and that's what the psalmist is saying. I realize how good you are, and, and I have no reason to fear. I have no need to fear because you are with me. You'll defend me, and that's the image. The psalmist chooses to feel safe in an unsafe world because God is the shepherd. He doesn't pretend that the world is safe. It's not. It's fallen right now, but God is good, and God will protect And God will work all things for the good of those who love him. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Whether these enemies are people, or these enemies are the temptations that plague us, or they're social constructs like oppression, they're expectations that are self-imposed or people put on us, whatever those enemies are, God prepares a table, invites you and I to this family table. He provides you not only with the necessities of life, but with dignity. He provides you with a position in his family. And his table is one of not just the minimum spread. It's not just a cheese and crackers table or the soup of the day. We're talking abundance, overflowing goodness. Before going into the presence of a king, subjects would have their heads anointed with oil. Sometimes when we talk about anointing in the Bible, there's at least two Hebrew words for it. One is like a spiritual anointing, like when David is anointed by Samuel to become the king, that's a special anointing. This is a different word. This is just a covering of oil. And before you came in the presence of a king, you would have to have your head covered with oil, this is going to sound funny, as a natural flea repellent. You couldn't come into the presence of the king and carry all your stuff, especially if you're, you know, out in the wilderness and on long journeys and sleeping with animals and all these kind of things. So the oil would keep the fleas out. So God actually, or the shepherd in this setting, uh, anoints the head uh, with oil so he can come near, so that you and I can come near and draw near the king. He makes us able to come to him. And so strong is this good shepherd that you can eat right in the presence of your worst enemies, and they wouldn't dare interrupt while the shepherd is near. Some serious confidence. I mean, we're not just talking about like people that are talking bad about your back. I mean, in this day, we could be talking about people who want to kill you. Like, if David wrote this psalm, you remember how Saul was always on his tail trying to kill him? And the confidence here is that David is spread out at this table, eating all of these choice things, invited by God, the good shepherd. And his enemy, who is in striking range, is right there, but that enemy would not dare touch him in the presence of the good shepherd. That's confidence. When you go to God in silence, in solitude, you're going to be plagued by the enemies of uh, the the enemies that fight against rest, and the enemies that fight against intimacy. But you'll be empowered to brush them aside, 
the shepherd will shelter you. And in his presence, you will find confidence and you will find perspective and your anxieties will shrink in light of who God is. Psalm 23 is a wonderful psalm to help us feel safe going into silence and solitude with God. And a technique I offer to you, I know I wasn't going to talk technique, but just one thing you could do is to read Psalm 23 as your entry point, as your entry prayer going into silence and solitude. But one of the things I love about this psalm, besides it being a, a great psalm full of good news about God's character, is that it was also Jesus's psalm. You know, as, as a young Jewish boy, he would have memorized the Psalter, would have been part of his training, any Jewish boy, not just Jesus. It's a psalm that Jesus would have learned to lean on as well. And I find it beautiful to think of Jesus resting in Psalm 23 as a boy, and then as a man wearied by his ministry labors and facing constant opposition. Jesus, it is clear in John's gospel, abides in the Father. And Jesus calls us to abide in him. He is our good shepherd. He knows what it is to feel true weariness. He knows what it is to have true enemies true anguish, and he knows what it's like to find rest for his weary soul, even when going to the cross for you and going to the cross for me. So when Jesus says he's the good shepherd in John chapter 10, he is. And when he offers rest to the weary in Matthew chapter 11, he knows as one, um, as one who has experienced rest from weariness from God. Let's have the courage to slow down and find life-giving rest in Jesus. Let's repent of our busyness and self-sufficiency so we can be with our maker and savior. Would you pray with me? God, there's all sorts of ways that you could have presented yourself to us And I'm so thankful that you present yourself in ways that make you accessible. The image of shepherd and a good one and a competent one and a strong one. Such a powerful image. I pray that you would take that image and, and help us, Lord, to, to enter into your rest. To trust you enough to know that you will redeem the time, even if it seems unproductive and frustrating. Thank you for the accessibility um, in coming to earth as a human being, for sending Jesus, for becoming one of us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that we know you can relate to us that you know what it means to be tired and weary and sad and frustrated, disappointed, misunderstood. You even know what it is to feel distance from God as you were on the cross. I'm reminded in this moment that Psalm 23 follows Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet you came to know uh, the loving good shepherd who leads us beside 
quiet waters and into green pastures and restores our very life. Bless you, risen Jesus. Help us to place our faith in you.